Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I am Chris Case, sitting down today with Trevor Connor, and we're going to try something a little bit new for Fast Talk today. We've dubbed it Nerd Lab. You've heard us refer to each other as nerds before on the show. This is when we get really nerdy and we pick apart some studies that we've liked. It's something new. We tend to do something similar on some shows, but we don't go very deep. We sat down uh, not too long ago with Dr. Stephen Chung, someone you've probably heard before on Fast Talk, and hopefully you've seen a lot of his great content on Fast Talk Laboratory's website, his workshops and, and other things. And he is a professor from Brock University. You're going to hear from him, and he reads lots and lots and lots of papers as an editor for some journals as well. So we pick all of these things apart. Trevor, I know you were really excited about this Nerd Labs concept because you kind of do this for fun, for entertainment all the time. This is my answer to the question, if you were sitting on a beach with nothing to do, what is the best thing you could possibly do with your time? And for me, it's, yeah, I'd sit on a beach and, and read research. And I think that is actually the definition of a nerd, somebody Pretty who goes much. to the beach to read studies. I always picture, I think I've told this story before, but my dad, who loves to read research in, in business in the finance world, he was literally sitting on a beach at a friend's cottage, and their eight-year-old son came up to him and said, what are you doing? And my dad's like, reading research. He's like, why are you doing that? And my dad gave him this whole thing about... Well, when you go to the beach, don't you want to do the thing you enjoy most in the world? So this is what I enjoy doing and thinking it would get through to the kid. Kid just looks at him and goes, you're weird. <laughs> and walks off. So, I, yeah, I, can see, I can see you sitting on the beach with your swim trunks, a pocket protector. No shirt on, just the pocket protector somehow on your chest. Ouch. Well, yeah, it might hurt with some pens. Um, nerdy glasses with a little scotch tape holding them together in the middle. And, you know, a pile of, uh, well, you don't use paper, a, a, a digital device with some, that's not as fun. I want the papers surrounding you on the beach. It would be a ton of paper. Blowing in the wind, you know, you're going into the surf to try to get Dr. Seiler's latest uh, publication in uh, Nature or whatever it is. My, my issue with this, I have never used a pocket protector. Ah, <laughs> oh, damn. I don't wear glasses. Nah. Otherwise, everything is 100% accurate. Yeah, okay, <laughs> swim trunks. <laughs> and, 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 and research literature. And I have done this. I'm sure you have. When I go to Tobago, yes, I sit I'm, there I, on the beach exactly. and read research. Hey, I'm Dr. Steven Seiler of the University of Ogden in Norway. And I'm a longtime contributor to and a fan of Fast Talk and now Fast Talk Labs. So I'm really happy to be involved, and I, and I think the Fast Talk Labs with Chris and Trevor and their team exemplify uh, some aspects of the coaching and the, the process that I value. One is, is science and, and being evidence-based, but another is, is communication. Communication between coach and athlete, communication between coach and other coaches, and then finally trust, building trust in that communication in that forum where everyone wants to learn and work together to be better. And I really believe that's what you'll find with Fast Talk Labs. So I'm proud to be part of it, and I hope you will enjoy it. That was Dr. Seiler from Fast Talk episode 139 when we introduced Fast Talk Laboratories and our new virtual performance center. If you enjoy Dr. Seiler's appearances on our show, we have really good news for you. 
We just unlocked all 40 of Dr. Seiler's webinars, lectures, and interviews on our website, FastTalkLabs.com. They are now free for members. Join at FastTalkLabs.com and you can get Dr. Seiler's pioneering work in one convenient place. Sign up for a free listener membership today at FastTalkLabs.com. Important to point out, yes, this is a second recording. There is a reason behind this. You take four of us who love reading research, you put us in a room together, and we don't leave. There was a certain point where Jana had passed out from probably boredom, and we were still talking. We are going to give you the trimmed up and hopefully higher energy, more exciting version of some new research. Not the cliff notes. You might call them the Trevor notes, the Connor notes. Sure, I'll go with that. Yes. Trade beach notes? Beach notes. The beach notes of science. All right. This first study comes from Dr. Stephen Chung. He selected it. It's called Effects of Time of Day on Pacing in a Four-Kilometer Time Trial in Trained Cyclists, coming from uh, the International Journal of Sports Physiology and Performance. came out in 2020. Trevor, what was the uh, overriding theme here in this, this study? Pretty simple one to this study, but something I actually really like because I enjoy talking with my athletes and saying, you're not always going to feel your best in race day. Sometimes you're going to go and you're going to feel pretty bad, but you'd be amazed at your ability to perform your best. And I think this study is an example of this. So they had athletes perform this time trial at different times a day to see the circadian rhythm uh, impact on performance and basically said, there is none. Mm -hmm. They did virtually the same time, any time of the day. So uh, you know, there isn't too much more to it than that. That's the message. You might have times of the day you feel better, right, but right. you can there still... Could be, there could be a preference here, but right. in terms of the science and the data, it suggests that it doesn't really matter morning, noon, or night. You're going to perform gonna be your a, best. Yeah, exactly. So the way they did this was... They had the athletes come in, not all on the same day, uh, but repeat this time trial over multiple uh, multiple days, uh, all the way from 8.30 in the morning to 8.30 at night to see the impact. And like I said, I, I think the time difference between their slowest and their fastest was something like four seconds. It was pretty tiny. So and not sig significant. None of it was significant. The only thing that actually showed any significance in this study which you would expect, because we've seen this as part of the circadian rhythm, is body temperature. We saw that their body temperature was lower in the morning at its highest kind of mid-afternoon. So that was one of the reasons they wanted to conduct the study. They thought if your body temperature is higher, you're probably going to perform better. So they were expecting a better performance in the afternoon, but they just didn't see that. Great. Let's hear what Dr. Stephen Chung had to say about this paper. I know for me, I'm generally either a you know not early, early morning exerciser. I'm not the one to wake up at six o'clock to train, although I will if I'm absolutely forced to. But, you know, I generally prefer morning or maybe kind of early afternoon. I find evening, kind of afternoon, evening, kind of after work uh, exercise really tough for me because I'm either hungry or, you know, or if I've eaten, then I'd feel really sluggish. So, um yeah, it's, I think a study like this also has practical outcomes for 
a lot of a lot of professional athletes too who their peak performance set by tv schedules is in the evening and um, you know to to be able to adjust their their clocks and their patterns and just have that really daily rhythm so that you're really in sync so that you know at 8 30 you're ready to go and that is your set schedule do your exercise do your workouts whenever it suits you best don't let it be a mental crutch that that all oh, you know i i i have i can only do it today at at lunch and that maybe that's not my best time of day just go in knowing that you can still perform and you can still get the best outcome all right well let's move on to this next study that actually dovetails quite nicely with the previous one it has to do with time trials trevor you've selected it effects of different goal orientations and virtual opponents performance level on pacing strategy and performance in cycling time trials that's a mouthful comes from the european journal of sports science you actually look at this it come came out ahead of print you stole this from the library it's not even published yet how'd you do that well i went there late at night (laughs) dressed completely in black Ooh. And pocket protector, yes, yeah, good with the multicolor. That's ultimately it gave me away. I almost got caught. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about this study, Trevor. So, there are really for me two big take homes or, or messages from this study. First one was about pacing. Uh, so I'll, I'll go into the methodology in a minute, but basically, they had these athletes time trial solo and then time trial against a, a virtual partner. And what they found, as you would expect, is pacing strategies were very different depending on whether they're racing solo or whether they're racing against this virtual partner in, in a virtual time trial. So the time trial solo, you saw them start out easier, kind of maintain their pace in the middle section, and then really push it in that last kilometer. And so it was a 10K time trial, really push in that last kilometer for the finish. When they were racing against a virtual partner, they went out much hotter, much harder in that that first bit, so the first kilometer or two, then settled again into kind of that regular pace, but they did not push the end, simply because by the time they were getting to the end, they were either certain they were going to win it or certain they were going to lose it. In either so there, case, was, there were two different conditions. There was a slow uh, yeah. opponent, quote unquote, and he was or she was, 3% slower. And then there was a fast opponent, yes. and that person or that virtual opponent was 6% faster. Yeah, this was kind of the cool part about the study. So they had them repeat this 10K time trial four times. First two times were solo. They took their best time from the solo effort, and, and as you said, they then created a virtual partner that was 3% slower than their best effort, so they knew that you could beat that person. And then the virtual partner that was 6% faster. So they knew there was no chance of you beating it. So they wanted a scenario where you, you were going to lose and a scenario where you were going to win. But they, the participants, the subjects didn't know that. No, they were being told that they were racing against other subjects in the study. Mm-hmm. So this gets into 
the second big message of the study, and this was what really surprised us, and I still don't know how to interpret this. What they are looking at or trying to look at was self-efficacy. This is your sense of your belief and your ability to perform the task. So they wanted to see how having racing against somebody affects your self-efficacy. The idea being, um, if you're beating somebody, that's probably going to improve your self-efficacy. If you are losing, that's probably going to reduce your self-efficacy. And sure enough, in the scenario where you were racing against a virtual partner, you could not beat. Self-efficacy plummeted. They had a, you know, that's a different conversation, but they had a, a way of measuring every minute during the time trial your, your sense of self-efficacy. So it plummeted. And I think they even theorized that once self-efficacy plummeted, your performance was going to drop. Here is what was surprising. The difference in the times was not significant. Basically, it was the same time in all three scenarios, going solo, racing against a slower uh, opponent, racing against a faster opponent. And that was surprising because the, the thought was you would probably be faster going against a slow opponent because that's very motivating. And you put in your slowest time versus the uh, right the uh, the much faster opponent. Now that you do see that in the results, but we're talking a couple seconds here or there, mm -hmm. which wasn't significant, but there was a slight difference. Yeah. It's yeah, it's that carrot or stick as motivator, which would work better for uh, an individual athlete. And this study is basically saying neither. Is that true? Pretty much. They're certainly saying they didn't see a significant difference. Mm -hmm. So the the and we're talking. So I mean the the solo was average time was thirteen oh five, going against a slower opponent was thirteen oh one, and going against a faster opponent was was thirteen eleven. So slight differences, but really, really pretty minor. So not sure how to interpret that. I think the the key messages here are for certain. Racing against an opponent is going to affect how you race, uh, how you pace yourself. So that's an important thing to know. Uh, I do kind of like the message that even if self-efficacy drops, even if you're against somebody who, who's faster than you, uh, you still might be able to put out a good performance and you should probably just keep your head down and keep going. That is a good message, definitely. This is a race against yourself, yep. not against other people, essentially. But also to important to point out that this does go in the face of a lot of the other research that's out there that has shown when self-efficacy drops, you, you tend to perform worse. Mm, interesting. Well, let's, let's hear from Dr. Chung on this. But I think it also really speaks to the power of a goal and the whole idea of racing against someone versus versus time trialing and where it's really kind of that intrinsic internal motivation is amazing. And certainly in time trials, if you get passed by the guy a minute behind you, unless you're pretty mentally strong, that can be a whole cause for just cracking and saying, okay, well, that's it. If I've been passed, what's the point? And yeah, it just really speaks to that that power of that goal, as long as you still think it is achievable, it can be such a strong driver. But the second that it becomes absolutely evident that it is not achievable, your self-efficacy motivation can just take its massive, massive hit. So I think it really speaks to, in some senses, the, this, the importance of setting 
goals and setting the goals that are proper that are going to stretch you but aren't in a sense so completely unrealistic uh, so i think it has that analogy to the podcast that you had about you know kind of what is a good goal and how to go about setting it so i think it has that that nice extrapolation to there all right let's move on to our next paper selected by dr stephen chung it's entitled Health Consequences of an Elite Sporting Career, Long-Term Detriment or Long-Term Gain, a meta-analysis of 165,000 former athletes. This ran in sports medicine, actually came out in 2021, so hot off the presses. Trevor, this is an interesting one and with a bit of a simple conclusion, honestly. Yeah, I mean... Good conclusion for us. Absolutely. We've chosen uh, a good sport. But a, a pretty simple one. So this was addressing this whole notion that's been coming out of this J-shaped curve relationship between uh, physical fitness and all-cause mortality, uh, meaning if you are completely sedentary, yes, this has absolutely been established. That is going to increase your risk of all-cause mortality. So it's going to reduce your longevity. Um but the question is whether it's then a straight line with fitness or whether it's this J-shaped where at a certain point, if you are training so hard and so much, it actually, once again, increases your risk of, of, of death uh, or reduces your longevity. So they wanted to explore this. It is a meta-analysis. Uh, love meta-analysis because you can never really draw a conclusion from a single study. So a meta-analysis is a study of many studies where you take the highest quality studies on the particular subject out there, and then there's very sophisticated statistics that can pull all their results together to come up with a overall result. Pooling the data and giving it more strength in a sense. Right. So my old advisor used to say that meta-analysis are the highest quality study out there. And ultimately, you can't truly prove something until there is a meta-analysis to demonstrate it. So this is the meta-analysis. And what they found after studying, how many? 165,000. Thank you. Yeah, it was right. Well, there you go in the title. Thank you very much. <laughs> You're very welcome. Yes. Yeah, so after studying 165,000 former athletes, no, it's a straight line relationship is basically what they found. You aren't really seeing that J-shaped. couple interesting things to point out uh, when they, they fine-tune it. Uh, one, that you see a decrease in CVD mortality in endurance athletes, not in power athletes. So since I've just been informed I mispronounced success, I don't put the suck in it. I'm just going to say, suck it, power athletes. Wow. Throwing it down, picking a fight with the wrong people, I would say. Yeah, they can pretty much beat me up yes. if they can catch me. With their pinky fingers, they could take you out. Yeah, that, that's pretty much true. So I take that back. <laughs> Cancer mortality was not lower in endurance athletes, but was in some of the other athletes. And then the other unfortunate thing, which I think we'll hear a little more about from Dr. Chung, is the fact that they couldn't find enough research specifically on women to draw similar conclusions about women. Let's hear from Dr. Chung now. The focus on cardiovascular disease and cancer is because those are two of the biggest contributors to all, all, all sorts of mortality. Those are the two big killers 
in the world. So by tackling those two, they got they got kind of the two big whammies in in a sense. And um, and then in terms of what else could they have looked at? Again, unfortunately, the data just really isn't there for for females. Uh, they even though they had decent sample size, they had you know fifteen percent of one hundred sixty five thousand is still over 20,000, but they noted that it was really from two studies of one of which was large and the other was really small. So, so they couldn't really draw good data from there because there just wasn't the number of studies. So that's really unfortunate. It points out a glaring lack of research in female physiology in health and in, in exercise that needs to be addressed. And, um, but I think Again, I've done a lot of meta-analyses uh, in my own career on different topics, and it is a very powerful tool. And uh, yeah, so I, I overall like this study. I think it was well done. And the, the big take-home message, I think, is not to look at these kind of uh, anecdotal cases, right? Because we, we hear of you know, Jim Fix, the the runner who started the whole running craze, you know, he died from a heart attack at age 51. And you hear of a story like that and you think, oh, my God, maybe I shouldn't be exercising or shouldn't be exercising that hard. Look what happened to Jim Fix. But what the, a study like this balances out by saying that's just one case. That's one kind of high profile case that in a sense is is almost an outlier. If you take overall percentages and just like in baseball, you play on probabilities, you are better off. The percentages are in your favor, actually, if you are active and exercising. So don't just look at those, you know, one single really high profile cases and, and base your, your ideas or on something on that one anecdote, really look at a percentage basis. And that's what meta-analyses allow you to do. All right, let's move on to our next study. This one, Trevor selected. Cardiorespiratory responses to constant and varied load interval training sessions. This comes out of the International Journal of Sports Physiology and Performance. Again, ahead of print, you've stolen this. 2021 is the publication date. So let's talk about some intervals here. What did they do and what did they look for in this study? Yeah, first I got to say a bit of a struggle for me bringing this one to the, the group, but I actually quite enjoy this because you know I am all about steady intervals. And the gist of this study is it's saying actually doing intervals at a constant wattage might not be the most effective way to do intervals. Mm -hmm. But I always love reading research that that makes me think, it makes me adjust my, my beliefs about things. So I actually quite enjoyed this study. It was a pretty simple study. They used cyclists and runners. I'll just talk about, talk about the cyclists, but runners, exact same protocol, except instead of using power, they just use pace. But so I don't have to, don't have to keep going back and forth. I'll just talk about the cyclists. And the gist of it is they had them repeat a set of intervals, four by four minute intervals with three minute recoveries twice. In one protocol, just steady wattage, right? I think it was right around VO2 max power across all four, uh, four interval sessions. In the second protocol, this was their decreasing protocol 
where you started the each four minutes about 40 watts above the power that they used in, in the steady protocol and finished about 40 watts below. So ultimately you ended up averaging the same wattage, but intervals obviously looked very different. So you, over the course of the four minutes, you're, you're getting easier and easier and easier. The theory behind this is goes back to what we've talked about a lot before, which is in order to produce an adaptation, you have to produce stress. So they talk in the study about the effectiveness of an interval session is really based on how much physiological perturbation you produce. And this I've been seeing more and more in the recent research. And they're big proponents of this, basically saying the effectiveness of intervals come down to how much time you spend at uh, greater than 90% of VO2 max. So that was their their theory and what they based this on. So everybody, when they did these intervals, they were hooked up to a, a metabolic cart and they measured their oxygen consumption. And what they found was in those decreasing intervals, because you were starting out so hard, you tended to spend more time at greater than 90% of, of VO2 max. So they, basically their conclusion is these intervals are more effective. Right. That does assume you believe that that is the best measure of an interval session. I would argue it's really interesting, but you do now need to do that study where you have athletes go and one group does the, the steady intervals, one group does the decreasing intervals for six to nine weeks, and then truly see if it produces a greater gain. Mm, right. Long-term effects of this right. could be very different. It's interesting, too. Uh, Dr. Chung recently did a workshop for us where he dove into some of the other studies that he's recently seen about this this difference, potential difference in gains between steady state and variable load or fast start. You might hear them described as fast start intervals as well. So here he is. Yeah, absolutely. And this fits in very well with the studies that I was looking at in that workshop where they were looking at um, at dry land skate skiing and doing the same idea of starting at a higher level than, and then uh, tapering down as opposed to a steady state interval. And I think it was also about that four to five minute roughly uh, effort and and they found very similar things. So this fits in exactly with what I, I saw in those previous studies. And this also fits in with my bias that because you're starting out with a higher state of fatigue, you are actually ending up doing more work and doing more, getting more stimulus as a, as a result. So those are my personal preferred style of intervals anyways. So I really like this study because it exactly matches my own bias. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts and be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback, so please join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode of Fast Talk. Become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com slash join and become a part of our education and coaching community. For Dr. Stephen Chung and Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.